0: This week's edition of Romaniacs is brought to you by Tide, the nimble small business banking service. Do you run a small business? If you do, then you know that simply running the show takes all your time and energy and banks don't help. It takes weeks to set up an account. There's loads of unjustified fees. They're so slow and they're not built for small businesses. Tide is a new kind of service designed to save your small business time and money. You can sign up in just three minutes and get a UK sort code and a commercial mastercard. You'll get brilliant features, including an automatic assistant that chases your invoices for you integration with major bookkeeping and foreign exchange software and customer service by instant messenger. Best of all, there are no monthly fees ever. Tide is small business banking the way it ought to be. And we've got a special offer for Romaniacs listeners. Tide is offering six months of free transfers. So that's no monthly fee ever, plus free transfers for six months. Just go to tide.co, no need for the UK, and use the promo code RPOD. After your six months ends, you'll move to a pay-as-you-go Tide account, charging only 20p per transaction. So it's farewell to monthly fees, the bane of a small business, and more time for you to concentrate on building your company. Visit Tide.co and use the promo code RPOD. Hello and welcome
1: back to Romaniacs, where we cover the longest and most painful episode of Deal or No Deal since the Wild West special where Noel Edmonds got dressed up as a cowboy. I'm Peter Collins and it's a compact and bijou edition this week to give you more time to cry into your cornflakes about the mess we're getting into. Dorian Linsky is away writing exciting things for The Guardian, but as ever, I'm joined by the boy in the bubble. That's the elitist metropolitan bubble, of course. It's Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. So I hear you sought refuge from the nightmare dystopia of Brexit Britain this week by escaping into the nightmare dystopia of the new Blade Runner film, Blade Runner 2049. So
2: what's it like? Is it good? Oh my God, it's so good. So I'm basically just one of the big sort of a big supporter of this film. I just thought it was one of the most uh, unspeakably beautiful, elegant, well-constructed things I've seen for ages. And there's also that thing that whenever you watch dystopian stuff now, you just sit there going like, well, I find this all entirely credible. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so it was.
1: And did you find any wonderful
2: metaphors for Brexit, or are you saving those for a future article? <laughs> no, 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 I'm terrible with that kind of grand sci-fi metaphor stuff. But yeah, you know, two and a half hours of watching the world fall apart will be instantly something that anyone in this country can quickly, quickly resemble. British jobs
1: for British replicas? I guess is one of her <laughs> phrases. And do you, think, do you think Theresa May would pass the Voigt Kampf test for being a replicant or, or even the Turing test? If I, if, if I ever get a <laughs> chance
2: to interview her, I'll keep on asking her questions about a turtle on its back or That's it, yes. yes.
1: Also, with us today, we have a special guest. Yes, as Dorian enters the revolving doors of King's Place carrying a laptop and a skinny latte <laughs> to go, out comes the multi talented Alexandreou, who is, first of all, a writer and columnist for The Guardian, as well as The New Statesman and Radio 4, who scribbles about anti-poverty campaigning, the politics of the left and Brexit. He's an actor as well. He runs his own small company and is currently the resident artist at the Theatre Royal Stratford East. And his first book, The Magic Bayleaf, is out next year, published by Chatto and Windus. He was born in Greece and is based in London and Mykonos. It's a tough life, but someone's got to do it. (laughs) Hello, Alex, and thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So we had a brief outside broadcast from Greece a few weeks ago and we heard that, you know, people in Athens are viewing Brexit with incredulity. Is that your experience?
3: I think uh, for the vast majority of people in Greece, as indeed around the world, I think Brexit and sort of the terrorist attacks in Europe and Trump have all merged into one giant. What on earth is going on? Um, You know, will we actually wake up from this nightmare?
1: (laughs) I looked it up, and apparently the Greek translation for "WTF" is omega taf phi. Is that correct?
3: <laughs> it, yeah, we yeah we do say though "WTF."
1: That's great. Weirdly, so, <clears throat> all the coughs this in this week's podcast are sponsored by Grant Shapps <laughs> and the campaign to get rid of Theresa May, just to remind you of that speech again and again and again. So we'll talk in a bit more detail about this uh, later, but you've got this Lexit argument here, the left Brexit argument, that we must leave the capitalist EU because look what it did to Greeks. But in Greece itself, there isn't really any more a sort of strong appetite for Grexit, is there?
3: There was never an appetite for Grexit in the way the Brexiteers mean it. This is another relatively minor but a fairly stonking porky pie of the brexit campaign no. brexit in greece was never about leaving the union ever it was never on the table it was about leaving the currency that's what was signified by Brexit. even at the height of the crisis support for being in the european union was in the 70 percent asked whether if they could go back in time people would vote to enter the european union in sixty odd percent said yes. So support for the for being in the European Union has never, ever really waned in Greece. It was simply a case of leaving the currency. And there are good arguments for it.
1: On a completely different note, weren't you once prevented from adopting a cat for for being gay? Is this true? (laughs) Surreal, but is it true? I think prevented from adopting
3: a cat is putting it a little strongly as if someone actually chased me around and prevented me from adopting any cat. cat. (laughs) It was just that someone uh, who had uh, uh, advertised... Uh, for a new home for two kittens, um, after we'd arranged everything and I'd bought all the stuff and I'd travelled all the way uh, to her place, suddenly I get this text saying, by the way, why are you single? It, em- <laughs> it emerges <laughs> quite easily, since I don't tend to keep it under a bushel that I'm gay, <laughs> and then I'm told that she's religious and disagrees with the lifestyle and so to give the cat to a neighbour with me literally on her street at that
1: point. So she thought you were going to take the cat down to Vauxhall and lure it into a life of vice, (laughs) did she? And
3: to be fair, she was entirely right. (laughs) I I have since adopted two cats and I am raising them super queer. (laughs) Um,
1: Tell us your cat's name we you want to know.
3: They are called George (laughs) Meowkel and Freddie (laughs) Percury.
1: So any homophobes listening, some cats are gay, get over it. So we'll be talking uh, more to uh, um, Alex a bit later about things other than feline gender issues. But first, let me remind you of a few important Romaniacs matters. You can support us in our valuable work of talking Britain down, undermining democracy, selling out the UK to Brussels and all the other slightly hysterical accusations. And you can do so by backing us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Send us anything from a few pounds upwards and you'll get some smart Romaniacs mugs, t-shirts or bags depending on how much money. You'll be helping us to devote more of our time to Romaniacs and to develop things like live shows and video. You can find the link at our main webpage, Romaniacs.com, and if you enjoy the show, please do also subscribe via Apple Podcasts either on your phone or via the iTunes Music Store and leave us a friendly review while you're there. It all helps to spread the treacherous word. Romaniacs.com also has links to the show on all sorts of other digital platforms. For instance, we are available on Android For those listeners who are replicants. Now, this is the point where Dorian normally shouts, Peter, where's the news? That's a good impression of Dorian, isn't it? So, anyway, let's have some news. So, it looks very much like the idea of crashing out of the EU with no deal is back on the table after several weeks of Theresa May and Philip Hammond and so on talking about a transition period and being a bit more emollient towards the EU side. So, for a while, we thought we might be just on course for the slow motion car crash rather than the full impact version. But on Monday this week, news appeared that the Civil Service had been told to actively plan for a no-deal Brexit. By Tuesday, Theresa May was warning us to prepare for a no-deal scenario, which is the political equivalent of a pilot shouting Brace! Brace! Or maybe Lance Corporal Jones from Dad's Army saying, don't panic! Nobody panic! (laughs) The government put out a white paper on customs arrangements after Brexit, which included a brief chunk on contingency planning in case there's no deal. For instance, raising the possibility of creating giant lorry parks somewhere on the motorways, basically to hide the huge logjam of goods trying to get through Britain's ports. At the same time, the government also enraged Brexit headbangers by floating the idea of remaining under European Court of Justice jurisdiction during the transition period if we do do a deal. But first, let's look at the two white papers that the government published this week and the spectre of... No deal. First of all, Ian, are we back to no deal really being a
2: serious prospect? I don't think so. I mean, we will talk a bit about this later. I mean, I I think she's basically just talking to her backbenchers. I don't really think she's talking to the Europeans when she says this stuff. Of course, that strategy depends on the idea that the Europeans wouldn't be able to hear her when she goes on TV (laughs) and talks, which is, is not a very good strategy. But nevertheless, I think the aim is really for them. They want, and I think this is primarily a sort of emotional... Response. I mean, almost everything is with them at the moment. They're not really engaging in facts, and they haven't been for a very, very long time. You could hear, actually, in Raphael Bayer's uh, piece in The Guardian today, he sort of mentioned that when Anna Soubry got up in the comments the other day and mentioned the cliff edge, one Tory MP shouted, there's no cliff, which is just, think, well, that is just <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, you're way off, you're way off the radar by this stage. So really, it's this sort of emotional sort of, you know, angry, we can do it, we can just do it. They want to hear her say, we can walk away. Yeah. And all of that stuff is based on, insofar as it has any reasoning at all, it's based on the idea that you go back to status quo by no deal. Because in almost every other scenario in your life, that's what you do, right? You go to buy a car. If there's no deal, you can't agree a price. You go back to the status quo of not having a car. yeah. But that's not what happens in no deal in this scenario. No yeah. deal in this scenario is you lose all of your regulatory infrastructure. You can't you know, basically send goods without prohibitively high tariffs to your largest export partner. It's catastrophic. I mean, you look at the stuff the, the World Bank put out, you know, earlier this year, and they're talking about 50% reduction in exports to Europe, 64% reduction in services. Sorry, the first one was for goods, for services it'll be 64%. I mean, very, very severe indeed. And yet nevertheless, they need to hear this stuff. So we have got this extraordinary spectacle to, uh, on Monday of Theresa May in the Commons, basically talking about a transition to Europe and talking to the Tories, uh, to the, her own party about no deal. In the same sort of terms. And really, what you made out of that absolute horlicks of a statement was your own. It was sort of like pick your own adventure. You know what I mean? Like, if yeah, you're yeah. a remainer, you can find this. If you're, if you're a leaver, you can find that. And that's what she did. So the answer is... God knows, but my best guess is she's doing this to sort of tickle the tummies of the proper lunatics in the backbench of the Tory party. So
1: you've got Hammond su- subsequently saying he is not setting aside money for a no deal to, to, to cover for the obvious, um, huge amount of money that would be needed to suddenly build all these customs posts and lorry parks and mm. so on. What astonished me about this um, is that uh, some of the papers talking as if the government had revealed detailed plans on all this. The Telegraph said this, but you expect that from the Telegraph because it's a bit rubbish, but the FT said it as well. The FT saying that the the, the customs white paper sets out a you know, detailed contingency plan about what's going to happen, but it doesn't. It just mentions the idea of parking lorries on the motorway. There's no detail whatsoever, and yet, you know, serious newspapers have drunk the Kool-Aid and talked as if there's actual planning going on.
3: But that's because you have two competing... Um strategies for both the government and the newspapers and and they're aware of both. And one is to uh, sort of report how the negotiations are going and the other is not to spook the markets sort of incredibly hard. <laughs> and everyone is aware of that and sort of trying to put the best possible spin on everything but you do sense more and more a manic Energy behind that, you know the people who smile too much. We 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 all know them, and and I think pretty soon uh, we're going to be told that everyone knew when they were voting for Brexit that it would be a No Deal, and Andrew Neil will compile a sort of video of uh, um, Remain campaigners uh, uh, warning people that a No Deal might be one of the possible outcomes and saying, well they you know, David Cameron told you, so there you are. This was always going to be what it was because in exactly the same way they did with the single market, nobody was seriously speaking about leaving the single market. At the, during the early days of the campaign. It just was not on the horizon. As a matter of fact, the, the, the historical roots of Euroscepticism were all about getting out of the admin bit of Europe while keeping the single market. That was its whole sort of central tenet. But then you find out that people play to the audience. They say what needs to be said to get a few cheers and get a few votes. And pretty much they find themselves stuck with it. And so the rhetoric sort of snowballs, it escalates, and it's doing so again. And what I fear will happen is that the European Commission will turn around at some point and say, look, enough. You know, if you're going to threaten us with no deal all the time, that's fine. Let's just do it, then.
1: Yeah, I did. You know, we were all these months down the line, and just when we think we're making progress, we get the complete opposite being brought out. No deal again. I mean, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's that's amazing. I think
2: mean, that's quite right, the manner in which you sort of put that. it's Apparently this isn't true about the frog... You know, you put it in water and you, and you slowly put the water up to boiling and the frog doesn't jump out. It stays. Yeah. Apparently that's nonsense. They right, do jump right. out. But whatever. Let's just pretend it's true. Um, that's basically what's happened to us. You up at the beginning campaign. No one talks about leaving the single market. And certainly, and let's be very, very clear about that, no prominent Brexiter. Talked about a no-deal outcome during the referendum campaign Absolutely that we never not. talked about
3: uh, they were telling us we we're going to be just like Norway. That oh, was and... the, it was the vibe at the beginning of the campaign to such an extent that the Prime Minister of Norway had to intervene <laughs> and go look guys we don't have such a sweet deal <laughs> you know it was that prominent as the, the sort of driving uh, force of Brexit that we were going to be just like Norway.
1: And, you know, all, After all this time, we're still not getting any sign that any serious planning or any serious intentions have been developed. If you'll indulge me a moment, you've got these two papers they brought out. They're white papers. Now, you expect white papers – I've read a few white papers in my time – to have a certain amount of detail in them. Just mean, let me zip through what I expected to see answered in the customs white paper. Mm-hmm. How are we going to avoid having physical border checks in Ireland, never mind the tiny traders that you let off, never mind the trusted you know, Amazon or whoever that you can rely on to, to do things. What about the smugglers? <laughs> what plans... Well, nobody
0: think of the smugglers. <laughs> well, indeed, yes. yes.
1: Yes, And what plans, what, what are the actual plans that are in, in place for building the customs posts, uh, hiring the customs officers, hiring the Home Office people that this week the Home Affairs Committee was told, we have to have all these extra people. You know, what's actually being done? What's the estimates of the economic cost of all this stuff? In What ways in the future might the British customs regime differ from the EU one? What are our principles? You know, are we basically going to have reciprocity with other countries that if they let us in, we let them in, or are we just going to say whatever they do, we'll open our doors? We'll be a free trading nation, regardless of whether whether countries are uh, protectionist or not. Like, there's overlap. That could have at least been in the trade paper. It wasn't there. You've got this question of, you know, what are the countries and the regions of the world with which the government hopes to be able to. You know, sign some deals reasonably quickly. There should have been some detail on that by now. Um, the, gov- the, the paper, the trade paper, admits that globalization hasn't worked for everybody. So, uh, to what extent are they going to use trade barriers to try to equalise things? Nothing on that. And uh, which industries are going to lose most from when we sign all of these free trade industries? What's the government's plans for for helping them? For instance, agriculture. And on and on and on. I re- wrote this long list of questions that you'd expect a white paper. To answer, you know, and it just Rather there's just there's just, nothing, <laughs> there's just nothing there. It's it you can see it's been padded out. There's one section in the customs paper where they repeat a whole section word for word. And this is, and uh, Ian will know this because you know you haunt the corridors of Whitehall. These white papers are supposed to go through constant, huge numbers of pairs of hands. Mm. To You know, they, you have these confidential final revises, as they used to be called, to get, that go around and everybody checks them and says, oh, no, that, that, that comma will, will put us in, in trouble if we don't move that comma. Mm. You know, all sorts of experts. And yet... A white paper gets put out with the whole section repeated, which shows that nobody read it. It wasn't shown round. Nobody has t- taken part in the thing, and there's
2: just no, no content to it. It's astonishing. Let's put both of your points together for a moment. You're talking, I mean, Alex, you're talking about the PR and the effect that it has on the Commission when they hear this stuff, and they think, "Well, fine." if You're talking about No Deal, then they're taking it seriously. You're talking over here about lack of preparation. Now we've now got both of those things happening at the same time. We've got the worst of both worlds taking place. A few months back in March, when David Davis went in front of a common select committee, he admitted they'd done no preparation, no assessment of what no deal would entail. Now, any former civil servant lost their minds at that, because the first thing you do when you're presented with an uncertain situation in civil servant is you go, what's the default? What happens if we don't do anything? And then you input various things into the scenario, you see what the effects are. Everyone freaked out that he said that. So we had no prep. That has continued until now. You're right, no buildings being leased. No training of officials, no systems being put in place for the regulatory structure, no roads being built for what you'd require for customs. And yet at the same time, all of the mood music to Europe is no deal, no deal, no deal. We're totally prepared to do this. So you basically are playing chicken with a lorry when you're the chicken. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a disastrous strategy. She You couldn't come up with the worst one. And again, it's happening because the Tory party is talking to itself rather than thinking about the national interest. I can't just keep on saying I'm going to say it how many how many times have we said it already over the last 18 months? I think now I just might wake up in the middle of the night in the darkness and keep on saying to myself, "Tory party talking to itself instead of thinking about the national interest." But that is where we are. That is what they're doing, and it's shaping up to be a complete disaster. The, the, there's one thing on top of that.
3: Yes, I was talking about the the fact that Europe does hear the, this uh, this argument that we're quite prepared to go to go away with No Deal, but I was also trying to hint uh, uh, to the fact that. Other countries have sovereign pride, too. You know, other countries have an emotional reaction to stuff they hear, too. Mm. The idea that we can somehow, you know, spend two months insulting everyone else and then sit with them at the same table and say, we're all buddies now, aren't we, is ridiculous. You know, the idea of Europe is emotional to the core to both sides. And and this was, I think, the mistake from the start and why we've ended up with an impossible conundrum because underlying the whole Brexit argument was this, that we can make an emotional decision to leave the European Union against our economic interests, but Europe will make a rational business decision (laughs) to keep doing business with us for its economic interest and it doesn't work like that the european commission every contact i speak to there is incredibly annoyed bitter and hurt by the uk's behavior and that cannot help but manifest in the negotiations
1: So let's move on to a related topic, um, which is the sign that the Brexiteers' search for scapegoats has started already. Uh, This week, Bernard Jenkin, who is an MP who is a leading light in the hard Brexiteer European research group at Westminster, launched a quite astonishing attack on the integrity of the Treasury. He wrote an opinion piece, strangely enough, in The Guardian, not where you'd expect to find it, which began with the phrase, ''There is no intrinsic reason why Brexit should be difficult or damaging.'' Of course there bloody well is, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Uh, He then went on to accuse the Treasury of being co-opted by the EU, of being blind to facts that don't support an anti-Brexit point of view and of no longer being trustworthy. This came hard on the heels of the suspension of two Conservative MEPs for not towing the party line. South West England MEP Julie Girling and South East England MEP Richard Ashworth had the Tory whip withdrawn for supporting a resolution in the Strasbourg Parliament which said, not unrealistically, that sufficient progress had not been made for the EU to start discussing its future trade relationship with Britain. So, are we seeing the search for traitors and backstabbers reaching a fever pitch here? Will we expect to knock on the door in the middle of the night ourselves?
2: Yeah, well, absolutely, we should. I mean, you know, that obviously started with Remainers. It was mostly Remainers over the last sort of 18 months or so. Obviously, an awful lot of that was directed towards Barnier, towards the Europeans. Today, I mean, I was seeing Giles Fraser, who's one of those people that I used to think was quite interesting, but who has drunk the Brexit juice and just turned into an absolute babbling fool. <laughs> His, um, was starting to blame Theresa May. He said, "Of course, it's falling apart because we put a Remainer in charge." You know I mean, <laughs> really, what else could she possibly have provided you with, man, in terms of her commitment? To I mean, the one thing you can't take away from her is I do believe she's fully committed to doing Brexit. Yes, once you know, she was in, she was in. Yeah, she she doubled down on that one, and of course, and there's the you know the friendly fire they have, the circular firing squad they've directed towards each other. You see, you know the way that levers now talk about each other; those on the soft wing, those on the hard wing firing shots across each other's bows. I mean, there is an awful lot of hatred and vitriol being thrown in every direction, all to make sure that psychologically they don't have to address the reality of the situation, which is that it is an innately dim-witted and catastrophic approach towards negotiations that they have adopted.
1: When Bernard Jenkin attacks the Treasury, is he just attacking Philip Hammond, or is he having a go at the civil servants themselves?
2: Oh, it's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, Hammond's their hate figure, but at the same time, they hate the civil servants, because the civil servants keep on coming up with objections to what they're trying to do. They want to live in a world of emotion rather than reason, and the civil service is a, is a barrier towards that. Uh,
1: Alex, were you a civil servant once? I was the for RFTs? a long time, like that, not, yes. not once. So, <laughs> so, so what, what can you imagine the mood is inside the Treasury among the civil and the other parts oh, of the I'm not entirely
3: service? sure. Look, there, there are departments and departments. I mean, I was part of a really sort of evidence-led, quite modern, multi-European department, but I went on Convent to departments where, I kid you not, people came in and bowed to the Queen in the morning. Wow. There was a portrait above the door and people actually did that. Um, so there's a range of civil servants. They're not one homogenous mass. But I would guess, from looking at the demographics of Brexit and looking at the demographics of civil servants, where you have, on the whole, highly educated people Um, On the whole, relatively on the younger spectrum, uh, a lot of them living in London, I would guess that the civil service is at its heart a Remainer. Uh, And I think that's causing a lot of problems because I think no one wants to put their name to this nonsense,
1: if could, I'm honest. Could you imagine, not that we're trying to suggest this, <laughs> a civil servants' rebellion in which they say, look, this is all a complete disaster. We're leading the country to disaster. There's no proper planning going on. Uh, we're we're just fed up of this and and we're openly... Well, obviously, we would do it by the, by the trade unions, I guess, but yeah, that would I then have... I think
3: you'd do it by delay, actually, yeah. delay and obstruction. I think people can be quite elegant in the way they, they obstruct things. Um, I think... There's such a culture, you know, the minister is always changing. The, sec- the secretary of state is always changing. If you delay something enough, someone else comes in and says you don't have to do that if you really hate it. Um, but, but I think the, the other factor is I, I think they're in, pa- in a panic. I think they're in a complete panic. They're used to internal deadlines. What I mean is government-imposed deadlines. They're used to talking internally. And this is a thing with a clock ticking that is immovable and they're just not equipped for it in any way.
1: The tradition has been that civil servants don't speak for themselves and therefore that politicians don't trash the civil servants, they attack the minister. Bernard Jenkins seems to be breaking that. I mean, is it going to break the rule, do you think, uh, permanently?
3: Look, new boundaries are always being pushed with regard to convention on that front. I remember really quite distinctly Theresa May sacking the head of Border Force. I thought that was a line crossed because it was clearly a policy matter, not an administrative or operational one, and she's the one that should have resigned under, you know, Convention of uh, Ministerial Responsibility, but she didn't, especially at times of crisis. These things are really stretched. The whole machine is spinning out of control at the moment. That's my sense from talking to people that there is a quiet desperation. People are not in a sort of flap. They've gone through panic and come out the other side on a sort of eerie anti-calm where they know there's no way this is going to happen. There's no... I mean, I could give you a minute example. If I could take two minutes, uh, the European Medicines Agency. Okay, this is the the body that approves uh, the drugs for this market. We don't have an equivalent anymore. We haven't had for many decades. This is going to be a sort of two to 300 person organization that needs to be set up by, by statute. Um, they need to find a, a, a chief executive and a board. They need to find a building. They need to find staff. And they need to start training them. And then they need to become this functioning thing that actually approves medicines for the UK market. That is a four- to five-year project. It's not an 18-month project, especially when you're relying on exactly the same people who are trying to set up 200 of these things on which we rely. Um, It's just impossible, and no one has thought these things through. They're only now beginning. What I sense is that people are sort of compiling lists. That white paper seems to me like a sort of brainstorming session. It's like we've leased the factory, we're down at the production line, they're asking us, okay, what do you want us to make? And we're only now beginning to go on a whiteboard, shall we make clothes or toys? (laughs) 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 That's the gap, that's the gulf. You have a machine that is ready to help, but no one else knows what, what it is they want to do and what outcome they're looking for. So it's impossible.
1: So let's move on to our final sort of news item for this week. Every week there's one, there seems to be one story or opinion piece. That captures the imagination of the Brexit-interested hordes. And this week it seems to have been a piece on the personal blog of Peter North, who's the editor of the Leave HQ website. It's headlined, I don't like this Brexit, but I'll live with it. And it makes a series of admissions and predictions that are pretty big for someone who's on the Leave side. So he says, we're going to lose a lot of manufacturing. Effectively, we're looking at a 10-year recession. He talks of mass job losses, depressed incomes, drastic cuts to the NHS and the armed forces. But then what made the blog post go viral, I suppose, was the argument that it'll all be worth it because living in misery for a decade will be good for our constitutions.' I expect to see a cultural revolution, he says, where young people actually start doing surprising and reckless things again, rather than becoming tedious hipsters drinking energy drinks in pop up cereal bar bookshops or whatever it is they do these days. And he says no matter how bad it gets, he would have still voted leave, and that in a lot of ways, I actually prefer this to the prospect of maintaining the 2015 status quo with ever degraded politics with increasingly less connection to each other. Some tangled prose there. So (laughs) I'm wondering, is he sort of a representative of a kind of millenarian cult among the Brexiteers? You know, bring on the end of the world because we'll all be saved. All the true believers will be saved and the sinners will be damned.
2: No, not quite. This is interesting, actually, because what he is a representative of is one of the most sort of intellectual... Well thought through aspects of liberal leave, which is the flexit stuff that he does with his dad. They do have done really good work. They were well ahead of the curb on this. I mean, for three or four years, I think probably longer before the referendum, they were talking in these terms. They were talking about Norway. They were supportive of the single market. And I remember after the referendum, I kind of thought these were the guys that could be worked with, you know, that you could build bridges on the sort of, you know, the people from Remain that, OK, they, they weren't going to overtone it, but they they did want to have a much more moderate interpretation of the vote. We could work with these guys the trouble has always been that he his emotional life is extremely distinct from his intellectual life so the way that he expresses himself online is full of anger and vitriol he has come after me on numerous occasions <laughs> in extremely colorful terms um, so you know so he, he just can't be worked with and i was and I, i'd been sort of warned of that before when it was when i was sort of saying look at these guys man they're coming out some really smart stuff and they're just like yeah. locked in a room on their own basically. exactly yeah. and so there was that real sense of intellectual resentment at anyone that was sort of coming into the club late into talking through this stuff, which, which is not a very helpful way to proceed if you're trying to accomplish something politically. So there's not much to be done there. This change was basically him saying, oh my God, there's going to be no deal, which for ages people have said, there's just no way that no deal can happen. And I actually I think it's quite telling that he's reached this conclusion and all of that's interesting. And then you go into the sort of millennialist bit, as you say, which is like, you know what, it's okay. You know, it's like the Joker in Dark Knight. Let's just burn the whole thing down, you know, and, and off we go, we'll, we'll start again because Hips like is eating cereal. Yeah, yeah, a mixture of Joker and Bane. That's a, that's a pretty good definition for where they are. So, yeah, so he's obviously had this sort of, this moment. And then really what was interesting about that piece was just to see the psychology of how you get to that place, you know, where you're so connected your political ideology that when you yourself have realised this is going to cost hundreds of thousands of jobs that you know people will have to struggle where otherwise before they actually had money they had things that they liked people are going to sit there panicking about their bills and you have to justify to yourself the decisions you've made by saying actually this is good because it will make us do more innovative projects (laughs) is just a catastrophic psychological place to have reached so it was interesting politically for where those parts of liberal leave have got to but it was also really interesting psychologically for the kind of contortions you have to undergo to justify your own behavior
1: i guess that I means whatever his justification and his line of argument is there is this liquidationist thing that's been running in economics. If you look back to the Great Depression the Wall Street crash and so on. You had these people saying, let everything be liquidated. Let everybody go bust. It doesn't matter how many jobs lost, because then we can start rebuilding quicker. Yeah. And it was seen as a respectable argument at the time. And there's still an element of that, isn't there, in at the very, very hard edge of free market politics. So there must be some people, I guess, what have he intended, reading his thing and sort of reading into it their own kind of liquidationist
2: view. And the kind of the Tory lesson from Thatcherism, which for a lot of it was, you know what, actually the way to do this is just very violent, aggressive yeah. change. You know, you tear up communities and you rearrange society, which is always part of the, you know, the Milton Friedman stuff was kind of the say, you know, when you go back to even sort of Atlas Shrugsy sort of idea, it's all in there. That kind of maelstrom of sort of so- social chaos as an engine of economic change. So yeah, no, you're right. This, this has quite a lot of history in its DNA. I mean,
3: crisis offers opportunity for profit, there is no doubting that, for those who have the capital. I remember uh, an economics professor once saying to me that the cycle of boom and bust, the economic cycle of boom and bust is basically what it represents is people making money with no actual value during the boom and then converting it into real wealth, as in property, during the bust. So you take this monopoly money that you've made during the boom and you buy loads of desperate people, you know, selling their flats, selling their businesses, and that's when you convert it into real wealth. So there is an element that's driving this. But I think Peter North is... He strikes me as an honest person. He doesn't strike me as someone from that side of the argument. He strikes me as someone who had genuinely honourable motives, however misguided that's now beginning to realise that, oh crap, maybe they were right. To which, you know, I know it's not terribly helpful, but, but my response tends to be, you won't get over
2: it. There's an almost kind of Wagnerian impulse on the left and the right at the moment. I think you see it in bits of sort of, of Corbynism, not all of it, but in parts of it, which is just this desire for big colourful, impactful politics and a sort of a hatred of compromise and of negotiation and of institutions. So that even when you see, you know, some of the hatred towards NATO or some of the hatred towards the EU, you just sort of think like, is part of this just that desire to see the flames, you know, to warm a, yourself th- by the there's flames. There's an
3: impulse there, a Wagnerian impulse there, but there's no orchestra. There's just someone playing the kazoo. <laughs> And so what you have is this wish for big ideas, but no one with the intellectual capacity to formulate them.
1: <laughs> well, that's, I think, probably enough news for now. <laughs> You've heard him just then and a few times already in the show. Our special guest, the writer, actor and hardcore anti-Brexiteer, Alex Andreo, is with us. So, Alex, do you think that Brexit has the process has changed Britain or is it just brought to the surface stuff that was already there?
3: I think it's done both to to a certain extent. It, It has revealed what was there. It's also empowered stuff that wasn't there. I think the Brexit campaign amalgamated a lot of stuff that was out there. There was a sort of public disquiet at inequality, at austerity. It sort of took uh, an islamophobia that was gently bobbing around you know it's not a surprise that the campaign focused on turkey joining and uh, sort of refugees from syria that's not an accident it tapped into something and so i think it became a sort of it became a trojan horse i'm going to mix my ancient greek metaphors Go on. <laughs> now so it became a trojan horse that turned into a pandora's box (laughs) you know they put loads of stuff in there to make it sort of big and bold and attractive to as many people as possible and now it's open and all this stuff is coming out and it's always the case you ride that tiger at your peril
1: You were born in Greece, yeah? I was, yeah. And how has Britain changed since you arrived here? What's been the sort of the the journey, if you like, that you've seen the country going through uh, from your arrival?
3: It's highly subjective, obviously, because my understanding of of this place as my home deepened the longer I stayed here. And so that might be part of it, you know, that I was seeing more of it. More of it was being revealed to me rather than it was changing. But what it seems to me is that it has become a much ruder place. And that's not a small thing, I think, in Britain, because I think that veneer of politeness it was the glue that held everything together. That adherence to rules was, you know, what kept everything going, What's always struck me is that Britain is one of the countries, if not the only country, in which I have heard tolerance exalted as a virtue. And that, to me, says something. To tolerate, rather than embrace or be excited by something new or learn from it or, you know, take it in, to tolerate something is, to me, quite grudging. It means that I put up with it because currently I have no choice. And I don't think that's unrelated to Brexit. I think Brexit, again, has rolled into it a lot of stuff to do with, you know, a lot of builders and plumbers and electricians who who lost work and whose prices had to drop when we got the influx of Eastern European tradespeople. It contains a lot of older generation people who are still resentful about Pakistanis and about Jamaican uh, people coming over. So I think it's become a sort of thing that has all of that into it. I think people tolerated a lot of stuff for many decades. And I think their decision to stop tolerating it is manifesting at the moment in all kinds of ways. Corbyn is one of them. They're not all sort of uh, mad, negative things. There are many positive things also bursting out from that bubble. But there are a lot of negative stuff as well.
1: I don't think you've been an especial fan of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, <laughs> it's looking at some He's of your past that, pieces. But
3: I voted for him the first time round. You know, I thought he was, uh, you know, given the the alternatives, I thought he was the best, the best person to sort of stimulate the party into the right kind of conversation. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I right. Um, I I mean, you, you be careful what you wish for, I think.
1: Well, that's what I was, I was going to build up to that, you know, we could, you know, have um, Theresa May forced out by the next plot uh, succeeding. And then the government just feels it can't go on. And we, we end up with another yeah. election, you know, well before Brexit Day. And you know, we could well end up with a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn. What? what Give you any idea what would happen then? You know, have you got any any sort of concept of what they would do with power?
3: I don't. Um, I I have a a vague concept that it would be slightly better than what's going on at the moment, simply because their underlying values are better, and so. I would have to believe that faced with the same sorts of judgments and decisions, looking at the same evidence, their choice-making would be better because there would be a humanism running underneath it and a a, a willingness to sort of use it as a tool for equality. Um, Having said that, you know, that's only half the game if that. The other half is competence, and on that I'm just not sure. I see, you know, I see one week that sort of goes like a dream, and then the next week it, the wheels fall off. I, I I don't know what to make of it at the moment. I I'm very I'm a big fan of Keir Starmer. I think he's working with very little at the moment. You know, he's sort of trying to shoehorn the Labour Party into um, into a sort of cogent policy on Brexit uh, in the same way that I try to put my cats into a box to take them to the vet. It's, it's a sort of similar scene. <laughs> Just as you think you've got it, suddenly you've got claws on your face <laughs> and, you know, hard Brexit. So I, I don't know what will happen. I do think Lexit is possibly the most misguided of all the sort of Brexit factions.
1: So let's change direction a little bit yes. now and talk to you in your actor garb. Where is the Brexit-inspired drama on the TV, on the stage? You seeing it, or is it, you know, it's 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 a big event, it's a sort of like looking like the Vietnam War of Britain at the moment. You know, you seeing um, the, the acting profession, the writing profession beginning to react and to be inspired... Uh, even in a negative way about it?
3: Yeah, it's, I think it's sort of too soon for it. I think it's a little bit too soon. I think stand-up, as satire, a sketch comedy are quicker to react. But I think for drama, I mean, nothing has actually happened yet. That's the point. We've talked about it to death, but nothing has actually happened yet. So the stories of it haven't emerged yet. Drama needs a little bit more time to mature.
1: As it was rather like we, the, the Vietnam War films, they really sp- came at us in, yes. in the 70s after it, it was over. Kind it of thing, it yeah.
3: sort of spawned a generation of art when the people that had gone through it, I think, as young activists, were basically in a position of money and power that they could tell their story, because that's also a, a big factor, you know. Um, you may have, you may have. Polish immigrants writing terrific stuff right now about the insecurity they feel in this country, about how betrayed they feel. But who's going to stage it? Who's going to put it on? Who's going to find them? You know, how are they going to get heard? So it takes a little time to filter through. But it will come. I'm sure it will come.
1: But in a sense, we, we actually need... Drama to address these things now because it is a way to to make people think. For instance, the, th- the stuff that you were just describing about how can you how the lexiteers expect you as somebody who is born in another country to support an idea that would be a disaster for you personally? Yeah. You know, a play that sort of you know just laid that out perfectly and had a, a, a relatable character or two in it would get that message across.
3: Yeah, so a, a, a personal story, but. The other problem is that it's so huge. You know, it's so huge. It's sort of where do you where do you start? It it encroaches on so many areas. I find myself writing a recipe and it's somehow steeped and marinated in bitterness about Brexit. So it encroaches into everything and so it becomes really difficult to focus. But like cooking with lots of lemons or <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> Listen, personal stories are what we need to hear, and personal stories are unfortunately what we won't get to hear until it's too late. I mean, I'm going to be chucked out. I know it. Quite aside from all the generalised bullshit, I've worked for over 25 years, you know, I've, I've never claimed a benefit, I've never been seriously ill, you know, I, I've been an asset to the state in any way that you, that you can sort of imagine... But right now my mother has Alzheimer's and I've had to reduce my work down to part-time because I'm her primary carer some of the time, sharing the duty with my sisters. And so when it comes down to it, the two things that uh, uh, processes always look at is your income and how much you're out of the country. And I would fail on both counts. If I were looked at right now for the last three years... I would fail on both counts. But I've got a 30-year history behind me. And so I feel betrayed. I made a silent bargain with this country to choose it as my home and to come here and give it everything I had to make both me and it better. And I've done, I've held up my end of the bargain. And so I find myself 30 years later thinking, what do I do now? What do I do? Do I apply for a British citizenship, cutting myself off from the rest of my family, who is in Greece, and the possibilities of other European countries? Do I leave the only place I have known as an adult? I came age 18. What do I do? It's a real sophist choice, and I've always wanted to play that. (laughs) So now I get
1: to do my Meryl. I think that's a good point at which to stop thanks very much for coming in Alex you're welcome right now let's just take a short breather or rather you can take a short breather while I rattle on for a bit about our magnificent partner podcast Big Mouth it's a lot like Romaniacs except that Big Mouth covers music films TV and books instead of the unfolding political and economic disaster this week the panel are talking about The Deuce, the new drama from David Simon of The Wire fame which portrays New York City at its seediest in the early 70s plus the new album by radical pop provocateur St Vincent... And also a splendid Sky Arts documentary about XTC, the British Beach Boys, science fiction, etc. And the BBC4 series, which does what it says on the tin, how to make it in the music business with Nile Rogers, or how to make it in the music business with Nile Rogers, depending on how you read it. (laughs) There are new new episodes every Saturday morning, and you can hear Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It'll make you forget for a whole hour that we're all doomed. And that's pretty much the end of the show. Like David Davis and, and R.E.M., we're out of time. Now, that would be an unusual collaboration, wouldn't it? Not even Nile Rogers would be able to rescue it. Thanks to our special guest, Alex Andreo. What are you up to next, Alex?
3: I'm uh, just about to uh, publish a book of recipes and memoirs of my mother. Basically, memories and Recipes that I've saved from her while she's losing her memory uh, because she has dementia. That's called the Magic Bay Leaf, and it's coming out early next year from Chatter and Winders. So I'm deep into the editing at the moment, moving commas and sort of (laughs) dotting I's and crossing T's. And
1: presumably doing a much better job than the people who wrote those white papers. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think you
3: could do much worse. I mean, the equivalent would be uh, me publishing a book of Greek recipes, that sort of page page after page of, what is moussaka? (laughs) (laughs) Let us discuss it. (laughs) How do you make
1: dolma? I don't know. Does anyone? <laughs> <laughs> thanks also to Ian Dunt who's been sitting there sipping a famous brand of soft drink which we're not going to name until they start paying us to advertise it (laughs) thank you Ian we've promised shout outs to our lovely Patreon backers Uh, unfortunately due to some technical difficulties last week's ones didn't come out so sorry about that so we're going to do those again now if you want to shout out yourself plus uh, crack at some of our lovely mugs and bags and t-shirts and stuff then visit our Patreon page Uh, you can get to that via romaniac.com we'll see you Next week, uh, before we go, there's the traditional sign-off. Uh, this week in Dutch from listener Caroline Will. Tot
3: ziens and bedankt voor het luisteren.
1: And so now our Patreon sign-offs, uh, accompanied by our wonderful theme tune. Hello and thank you to Martin Hammond, Andrew Morgan,
3: Catherine Mottram, Claire Morgan, Monique Hawkins, one of our past guests. Hello, Chris Brahms Pascal, Eleanor Cove. Relax,
1: don't do it. It's cliff fluid and Paul Miller <laughs> <laughs> Thanks as well to Mike Holden, Vicky Gillard Imati Mitame, the mysterious Emily, David Gibson, Karen Soden, Matthew Caldwell, Ian Chilvers, Jamie
2: Pullman and John Davey. Uh, and it's thanks from me to uh, Craig Craw, uh, Linda Lloyd, Eleanor Henson Eva Begalki, Rachel Hewitt, Chris Thompson Paul Everett, oh my Christ, <laughs> Shinkaruk. Um, it's Anthony Shinkaruk, probably um, Gabrielle Alisi And Helen Luckman. And if we haven't
1: read out your name yet, uh, don't worry, there's always next week.
0: Au revoir. Romaniacs was presented by Peter Collins and Ian Dunt. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.